This is a trope in science fiction. There's some kind of disease on board and the scientists are racing against the clock to develop some kind of vaccine, some kind of solution, and then they manufacture the drug that's needed and everybody is saved. Well, when you think realistically about the future of human spaceflight, like you're going to fly to space with the things you brought. Yeah, you may bring some ibuprofen and some uh, some other medicine, but if you need something more complicated than that and you are months away from Earth, you're just out of luck. But what if there was a way that you could manufacture the drugs that you require in space? and that you could especially things with a very short shelf life that they're going to expire faster than you could have the stuff replenished. What if you could just make it on demand while you're in space. And so this is the idea of the new NIAC grant awardee that we're going to be talking about today, Dr. Lynn Rothschild, she is an evolutionary biologist works with NASA, and is working on a system, an astro pharmacy that astronomers will be able to in theory, uh, be able to produce the kinds of medicine that they would require for very specific things, especially things like dealing with potential radiation resistance about other, you know, problems with bone loss while they're in space. So if there's a way that we could have these medicines be produced on the spot on demand, that would be pretty cool. And I'm sure you can imagine that there would be applications back here on Earth. So we talk about the actual NIAC grant, what are the specific applications, and then we kind of broaden the conversation to talk about just what this idea of being able to manufacture biological based end products, how we would be able to incorporate that into our society, but as well as the risks involved about both planetary protection and you know, whether this stuff is actually going to be sustainable and, and durable. So it's a fascinating conversation, a little outside of my normal wheelhouse, but I hopefully was able to keep up to speed. So enjoy the interview with Dr. Lynn Rothschild. I guess it's time for the another one of our NIAC 2023 interviews. And this one caught me completely uh, surprised off balance that the technology is at the point now where we can imagine printing pharmaceuticals in space. How? How's this possible? <laughs> well, um, the power of biology. I, I mean, we're not really printing them, but most pharmaceuticals today are either made by organisms or could be made by organisms. I mean, here's sort of a silly example, but um, aspirin originally was isolated from willow trees. You know, many medications that we, penicillin is a mold. Many medications that we use were originally from organisms and mm -hmm. there's no reason you can't produce them with organisms or, or cell components. The problem is we're not going to take willow trees with us and probably not huge plates of a penicillin mold. Um, but what we could do is take those capabilities to make these biological compounds and put them in a form factor that's tiny and hopefully has a resting stage and that could then make these on demand. And what um, many people do out in industry is use cells like Escherichia coli. It's a common bacterium E. coli. You've probably heard of it. Um, we tend to focus on a different bacterium that's also fairly commonly used. It's, it's found normally in the soil. It's a safe bacterium called Bacillus subtilis. 
And the reason we focus on Bacillus subtilis as a form factor is it actually has been flowing in space for long periods of time, most notably on the long duration exposure facility, which um, exposed Bacillus subtilis spores for nearly six years to the space environment, um, and many of them survived. So we combine the fact that these are biologically made compounds, we take that capability, put it in a form factor that's already proven itself in space, and then use all sorts of miniaturized purification methods, and bingo, we have an astropharmacy. So what kind of, what types of compounds would it be possible to make in theory? Well, in theory, you could make nearly anything. (laughs) People make bioplastics. I mean, it goes without saying that uh, petroleum is ultimately a biological compound. Um, But what we're focusing on is something that's interesting because it's very low-hanging fruit for us, and that's making protein-based pharmaceuticals. Mm. Things um, well, insulin is a protein-based pharmaceutical. We're not making insulin at the moment because we um, are not selecting diabetic astronauts. But there are many other peptide, so protein, small protein-based drugs that are becoming increasingly important in medicine today. Now, the good news is they're easy for us to make. The bad news is that they are terrible in terms of their shelf life. So many of them are lucky if they can last six months, and that's under refrigeration. And this is probably one of the reasons that commercially they are so expensive on the earth. But again, the the thing is that they're easy for us to make. So it's sort of a win-win. Mm. These new, new class of drugs that are becoming increasingly important very poor storage and easy for us to make. And so that's why we're focusing on that as a beginning. So I think about that idea of like insulin, like you have to keep it in the refrigerator. The manufacturing process is fairly extensive. I know like, I know there's a, like there can be shortages because of this short shelf life. It's, it's a very complicated supply chain to make sure that all of the people who require this drug get it at the right time. Um, so what are some other examples of drugs that, that are protein-based? You mentioned insulin, which is a very famous one. What are some others that people might be familiar with in their day-to-day lives? Well, they may or not be familiar, but the one one of the ones that we're working on right now is teriparatide, which is very important um, in treating osteoporosis. Now, we also have problems with astronauts losing bone density, mm. and it is also on the astronaut med list. So it's one of those things that just double duty. Now, you talked about you know, the the poor storage capabilities of something like insulin in the supply chain and so on. What we have sort of internally challenged ourselves to do is to be able to make the drugs in 24 hours, preferably from ingredients that don't need to be refrigerated. So you can say go and in 24 hours have a pharmaceutical that's pure enough to give to a human. So huh. that's that's our goal. And I and by the way, I'm trying to get this whole system in the form factor of I, I alternate between saying, you know, a wallet and a cell phone, but you get an idea of very tiny size wow. uh, so that we can pull out of our pocket. I talk to colleagues at the Department of Defense occasionally, and they say they'd be happy to have it the size of an SUV. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a no-go for uh, for astronaut for sure. use. You know, the size of a UV for a single drug, I don't think so. But what about the size of a wallet? 
Um, and so, you know, you might need something faster than 24 hours or you might need it chronically. So say you make it, you just have that as part of your protocol. Oh, yeah. Um, once a month or once every three months, um, we just add to our duties to make another batch of drugs. So you have on board like each one of these devices, for example, will have the raw materials, the dry ingredients to then manufacture that very specific drug biologically. Is there any kind of overlap? Like, could you, like, I think about like making, you know, if you make some food out of dry ingredients, you could make chili and you could make, um, you know, refried beans, both with beans that you've got kept dry. So is there, are there these kinds of overlaps where you can sort of have a single one do double duty? Absolutely. You're, you're looking into my mind here. Right. Um, so I, I actually think a, a lot of organisms now in an allergy to a say a cell phone, I'm looking at mine right now, in that you have a basic operating system, the ability to make proteins, for example, and DNA and so on and divide. And then you have different apps. You have the ability to make, you know, maybe a, a certain pigment or to make teriparatide or something like that. And so what we're doing is actually taking the same bacillus, but we program one to make teriparatide or um, human growth factor or, you know, this or that or the other thing and the human growth factors and so that astronauts grow taller it actually is a way to fight radiation damage um and so we we program the same cell to make it and what we do to aid in the purification is we put a little tag on these proteins so some of your viewers may be familiar with what's known as a hist tag where you put a couple of histidine amino acids in a row and then you pull it out with a nickel column. That's one approach we're using. Other sorts of tags. So what you do is you put some extra um, amino acids at the end of the peptide, the end of your protein, that can then bind to a metal, for example, or other kind of column, and you get enormous purification hmm. in one step. And then you add a second purification step, maybe sizing, and you should be able to purify almost anything. So if you have the same organism to start with and you're programming it with different drugs and you use the same signal on it, the same the same marker for the purification, you can use the same columns. So basically what I'm trying to do is create this platform where many of the components are interchangeable. It's just you simply have programmed the different cells to make different drugs. Now, you mentioned, you know, we've talked about these protein-based drugs, but you sort of led into this, not all drugs are protein-based drugs. So are there biological processes that can generate the other classifications of drugs? Of course. I mean, you're not made all of proteins. Uh, you know, you've got lipids, you've got pigments, you've, you know, we all do. Um, don't mean to pick on you, DNA, <laughs> no, RNA. No, I specifically known for my lipids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, um, you know, we, we can make darn near anything in our body. Certainly, um, you can program a bacterium to make darn near anything. Obviously we don't make chlorophyll. I'm not green, you know, and so on, but we should be able to program, um, bacterium to make almost any biological compounds and potentially some that are normally not biologically made. Um, but I don't want to get down that rabbit hole, but just think about it. You know, there are drugs that are steroids. There are the, the vaccines that we've all been using mm -hmm. to um, to try to resist COVID have been RNA based. All those things are made by all organisms. So it shouldn't be a big, big deal to program cells to make many other classes of drugs. But with a we, we're now in a what they call phase two of an IAC. 
And that still is not quite enough money to really go branch out into a gazillion different types of drugs. What we're really doing is, um, and this is what actually one of the great things about the NIAC program, they force you to think in a holistic way. Many other programs would give me a lot of money to just focus on the biotechnology. Mm -hmm. But NIAC wants to see, as they call it, a pathway to infusion. And so I can't just say, well, we now have the perfect method to make teriparatide, for example. Okay, well, then how is this actually going to work? But what we need to do for NIAC is think about that right from the beginning. So I need to think of this in terms of not just the bioengineering, but then how are we going to purify? How are we going to give it to the astronaut? How are we going to store it? How does this whole thing fit in the terms of a, of a mission? So um so the answer is, is we haven't branched out into other classes. We are going to, as part of our phase two, develop a database so that we get an idea what could be done in the future in these different classes of drugs, starting with what the astronauts already take with them. Um, some things are in pill forms that are pretty stable. You know, you buy aspirin, I think they're good for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no point in reinventing the wheel. Um, if you've got a perfectly good tablet, you know. Right launch it to space. Right. So exactly. Why, why, you know, make something new, but it's all these other sorts where there isn't the same sort of stability that's known. And even if there were, say you want ultimately to have flexibility, say you ultimately are concerned about having humans on say Mars, multiple launch windows. So they're there maybe for five years. Um, and they might worry about running out and resupply missions and so on. And so it might be nice to be able to take the capabilities to make darn near anything with you. I mean, this idea, like as humanity expands further and further out into the solar system, it's, you know, it's so hard to get the materials that we require to these places in raw materials but i think the the part that's going to be so complicated is not in like how can we get them a whole bunch of steel or how it's how can we get them the various tiny specific components that they didn't necessarily know they were going to need before they set off on their journey and i mean i think drugs are just a absolutely ideal example of this as as you said, you know, for the things that have this short shelf life, but also what if somebody has some medical problem and it turns out that the only solution is this very specific drug? And of course, they're not going to pack that drug on this journey to Mars, but you just send the instructions and then back to my 3D printing idea, out pops a pill and they take the pill and now they're getting treatment for this disease that nobody anticipated and yet they're able to treat it. Like that just sounds almost mandatory. Right. And and we're thinking in, in very similar paths. They're not really printing, they're they're producing it. Yes. But let me sort of step back and and tell you what um the way I've started to envision it is that as a life chauvinist, imagine planet Earth without life. As I said, there would be no oil deposits, the continents wouldn't look the same. We wouldn't have all this organic material on the surface. We'd have oh, a few amino acids and so on that are raining down from meteorites and comets. But basically, we'd have minerals, we'd have water, we'd have CO2 in the atmosphere, we wouldn't have the oxygen atmosphere, we'd have nitrogen. Why do we have this enormous complexity of compounds? It's because of life. Mm -hmm. And so life has been able to do that for planet Earth 
Earth. It can certainly do that off planet Earth. It's a matter of finding the right form factor. I actually, as I'm an evolutionary biologist by training. So I look out the window, I look at this amazing diversity of life and I want to know where it came from and how it evolved and, you know, all those cool sciencey questions. But as a synthetic biologist, as a bioengineer, I look at the window, out the window, I look at the same organisms and I see them as this giant genetic hardware store Mm -hmm. and think, we can take this capability and this capability and put these together. And in principle, we could make Kevlar, for example, biologically. You certainly can make cellulose. And I, I, t- I tell the story all the time because I think it, it is such a wonderful one. I was at, a, at headquarters when I started this program years ago, and um, I was in a room with a lot of engineers. And one of them was sitting next to me finally said, look, you think biology is so great. Could you ever engineer biology to make rubber? And my jaw just dropped. I said, rubber literally grows on trees. <laughs> That's where it comes from. Right. So does latex. So does cotton. Wool. I mean, yeah. all of these biological compounds, for goodness sakes, it's a matter of using the right form factor. And you keep bringing up printing. Our very first NIAC actually was on bioprinting. And so imagine you now have a cell that is programmed to produce wool and another one that's programmed to bind metals. Um, And maybe you, you, take them and you print these cells around a, a, maybe a, a bacterium that's making aspirin and you have this little tiny, you know, sort of pill-like thing that could get into cells that is never found in nature. It's something completely new because you've mixed and matched. Mm-hmm. I mean, like evolution is great and all, but it is additive that each time it comes up with a new trick, it tends to build upon what it's, what it's already got. But with synthetic biology, you can kind of go back to a more engineering approach in that you can go down to the sort of the simpler parts and, and build them up from that perspective. Does does thinking about this problem sort of like, I'm trying to sort of explain this, but like, like does thinking about this problem from an engineering approach as opposed to necessarily an evolutionary biology approach, how does that change your perspective on what's possible? Oh, I mean, it's it's a completely different change, both philosophically and knowing what's going on in the field. Um, philosophically, as I said, I grew up as a scientist, and you you look at at what nature has wrought. As an engineer, you're making something completely new, mm-hmm. and so it it. <laughs> my father was um, studied engineering, and I was surprised to discover I had an inner, inner engineer in myself too. And it, it is fun making something completely new. Um, so there, there's that part and I'm sorry, I forget what the other, the other well, one. just, I mean, I guess like when you think about biology, it just is additive, like, like the human brain, for example, right? We are built on top of fish, built on top of mammals, built on top of primates. And then it's amazing that we can do the things that we can do when at the heart of it, we're just talking fish, um, and appendix and everything else. So yeah. what I was to tell you is that there are people around the world um, who are working on building cells from scratch. Um, we have an NSF-funded uh, research consortium network that I'm a co-ion, in fact, called Build a Cell. We have our, our semi-annual meeting coming up next month in Minnesota. Um, and Kate Adamala, who is the PI on that, um, from the professor at the University of Minnesota, uh, runs a Monday seminar series that anyone can listen to. There, all the talks are recorded, and 
90% of the time, these are people I have never heard of. And another 90% mm. of the time, it knocks my socks off. I I am just stunned by the quality of work going on around the world, dissecting things like, you know, how could you get something that's basically from the Sigma catalog to make a cell and then divide or move or sense this. So that's sort of the ultimate building up from scratch saying, okay, we have locked into a system for better or worse, where we use four bases in our DNA. We use four in our um, RNA. We tend to use about 20 amino acids and they're all the amino acids are left-handed and the sugars are right-handed and so on. Okay. What if you built a mirror organism where you had left-handed sugars and right-handed amino acids, or you had a five-base code or a six-base code. And there are people who've done this sort of thing. I mean, it, Steve Benner in particular has done a lot of the work on a six-base code. I mean, this is just amazing. You can try things that maybe evolution tried, but we have no trace of it, mm-hmm. or maybe it was never tried, or maybe it was tried on another planet in a galaxy far, far away. But it allows us to say, oh, what if we did it this way and make orthogonal life? What if instead of using a lipid membrane, we made a titanium membrane around a cell? And we had that particular cell pretty much impervious so that it repaired cracks in concrete. I'm sort of mixing and matching actual projects that I know about from the last 10 years. This is not just me you know, wildly speculating. Um, so it, it's amazing how fast the fields moved, what we're able to do that we certainly couldn't do 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I mean, it's it's been a heck of a ride. But what's really intriguing is I believe a lot of these advances that are being used on the earth, we can take as inspiration, lever this techno- leverage this technology and use it to solve a lot of our problems of taking humans into space. I mean, you, you give this idea of like rubber growing on trees, but when you think about this future lunar base or, or maybe more appropriately a Mars base, because even cyanobacteria will grow on Mars given the right conditions. Um, what kinds of materials do you think could be biologically generated above and beyond just pharmaceuticals? I mean, are they building building materials? Are they building components for their rovers, their clothing, all of that? Sure. Um, and again, um, cyanobacteria, nothing can grow on the surface of Mars unless it's in a fluid inclusion, because remember, yeah. you're, you're away from the triple point of water. So you do need the liquid water. And we do also have the issue of planetary protection. We are not allowed to just go contaminate Mars because wearing my other astrobiology hat, if there was life on Mars and we obliterated it because we decided to set up a skyscraper using um, bacteria, that would be an enormous scientific tragedy potentially the greatest scientific tragedy of all time. Um, But what could we make? Well, (laughs) um, we could make almost anything. I'm looking around my room and right here, I've got a desk that's made out of wood. I am wearing cotton material. I've got leather on my shoes. I've got leather on my watch band, Um, you know, on and on. So, you know, the building materials are there. Now we also out in nature use organisms to agglutinate, to bind together um, sand. That's what a lot of these filamentous fungi do to stabilize the soils. Now there are ways to then take that kind of 
life technology and use that to make, for example, bricks. I'm part of a NIAC that's that's doing some of that work right now. Um, and um, there's no reason you can't take fungal mycelia, for example, and build something even bigger. There are architects who are playing with making boards out of it, using fungal hmm. mycelia. To, I'm looking around the room to see if I have something to show you. I didn't realize this was going to be video. Yeah. Uh, but say something that's common on the earth or would be wood chips. And so what these people who work on what's called mycotexture, mycology being the study of fungi and texture from architecture do is, is bind things like wood chips. Um, we've shown that you can bind lunar and Martian regolith simulant. So then you have a way to start to make something like concrete or wooden boards. And particularly once you bake these materials, they end up actually very much like um, particle board. So I, I love bringing bricks of these things to NASA headquarters. And they said, well, that's particle board. What's the big deal? And I say, smell it. This smells vaguely mushroomy. So we actually are finishing up a, a phase two NIAC on that very subject right now, building structures off planet using fungal mycelia as the binding material to to build a habitat or a rover shell or a rover shed or you know and as i said you could you could bind um bind the the surface material the regolith to make a landing strip in principle um i you know you'd have to look at the temperature and so on um we've also had a NIAC and and a lot of other funding though never enough to work on biomining um most well every organism uses metals now, we use a lot of metals in our body. We don't think of ourselves as organometallic um, <laughs> compounds, but we are. And people ask me, what metals do we use? And the cheap answer is, look at the back of a vitamin bottle. I mean, right. it's selenium and iron, and you know, it goes on and on. We use lots, and there are lots of other organisms that also use metals. But you can't mm -hmm. just say, well, we're going to kind of bind metals. If you're an organism, you have to be absolutely precise. You can't just say, well, say 75% of my red blood cells bind iron, but that's okay. A few of them to selenium, a few of them to copper. No, it's got to be 100%. And so we have that kind of selectivity in biological organisms. And so my point has been to take advantage of that kind of selectivity in binding in making polymers and then translating that into making other things. So the biomining, we take advantage of the fact that there are many um, short proteins, peptides, that combine different metals and sometimes with absolute specificity to use it as a way to either mine metals from surface material or spent electronics or what spent electronics was the NIAC project. Um, or separate metals, because it, there may be other ways to do sort of bulk mining. And then you have this, you take advantage of this power of biology to do the separation hmm. technology. So you could take a scoop of regolith, throw it in your bioreactor, feed the bioreactor, and a few hours later, come back and pull out a tray of titanium and and it's extracted the rest. Well, Pretty close. So what we've done actually over the years is combine the biomining project where we're taking advantage of these proteins that bind metals and combining that with the mycotexture. And so what we're doing is we're attaching 
um, proteins to the surface of the fungi, using them as a substrate to build a filter. So we've had a paper on that. We have a, a patent that's been in the patent office for two and a half years, hopefully nearly um, granted, but we got the, the provisional here. So um, what we're doing is making a biological filter to filter out metals. So it's not even a bioreactor. It's like a filter that in the end is potentially compostable or certainly biodegradable. Hmm. That's really interesting. So, I mean, like, like take this technology to kind of, it's like a hundred years down the road. Um, like, what is it, what does it look like? Like, is it I'm like, I'm, so I'm thinking about like, like the Star Trek, you know, food making machine, you know, the replicator where they can sort of make objects and stuff. I mean, when we talk about all the different materials and even if, you know, like why, like you may not want something made out of plastic, but it would Kevlar be okay, right? Like, like you could substitute in biological replacements for almost anything that we use out of plastics and, and things like that. So what do you think kind of the future holds for that? And it must have an application back on earth eventually. Certainly. So the replicator idea that you mentioned is one that that we've been playing with for a long time. And now it's starting to become a reality um, because a lot of people are working on bioprinting. Um, as I said, we, we started on that. Oh, it's about 15 years ago. It's really interesting work because you in principle could make something completely new or say you could print an organism. I was saying, what about printing a steak? You know, it's a, you channel your inner Star Trek on this. Yeah. And, these technologies are moving really fast. I really hate to predict a hundred years from now because it's really hard to predict two years from now because the field is literally moving that fast. But I would say that using organisms or ones that have been built from scratch, you know, again, just throwing something off the top of my head, mm -hmm. say it's titanium membrane or who knows what, um, or, or using the cell components, say you could take the, the machinery to build proteins from a cell and dry it down, which people do. We've, we've started working with that a little bit for the astropharmacy. But say it becomes so stable that you, you make it like in a Tide Pod sort of, you know, uh, form factor. You know, I'm not supposed to mention particular companies, sure. but you can imagine yeah. a detergent, you know, a, a detergent sort of thing. And you just throw it in the mix and you print your DNA to make whatever instructions and off it goes and makes anything. Hmm. Um, and so I really think that we will be, we will have that kind of bio-based economy. Um, I know people talk about instead of going to your FedEx store to print your photograph or your poster, that you go there to um, print a new cup or you print a new type of metallic object or whatever that's that's printed with biological organisms. Now, I, I do have colleagues who think that everyone will do that personally in their own house. And I think that's kind of ridiculous because most people are not that kind of, you know, um, crafty-ish. I, I am, I actually sewed this shirt that I'm wearing right now. Um, we have the technology to make our own ketchup. We've had that technology for well over a century. How many other people do you know who make their own ketchup? Right. And right. so I think if, if they're not making their own ketchup, they're certainly not going to be making their own bio, you know. But if whatever. there's a machine that sits on your countertop and you talk, you say, you know, give me a bottle of ketchup, please. And then out pops a bottle of ketchup that is both the ketchup and the bottle all together. 
<laughs> I, I think, I, I mean, I think realistically, it's more likely that you're going to have a, you know, a FedEx or centralized one, you go online and you order it and they print it out and mail it to you. Um, but anyway, that, <laughs> that's, that's quibbling over details of whether people do it at home or, or go to yeah. some other place to get it done. But right. I think you'll find that we can make darn near anything. And and think about it. It's not just the solution to space travel where you can't take everything with you. You need to have low mass solutions, but it's also the solution to a lot of Earth's problems because you're dealing with a, a much more smaller personalized, for example, with the, the medicine that we started off talking about, the astropharmacy. In the United States, an orphan drug is a drug that um, is has fewer than 20,000 Americans who need that drug. 20,000. That's a huge number. It's mm -hmm. it's nothing for a pharmaceutical company. And so if we can start to take up the slack or you're going places in remote areas where you may not have access to drugs or you're worried about supply chain issues or or or. So I do believe that this or personalized medicine, you know, you don't you can't deal with the standard I'm just going to pick on insulin. Um, maybe you need a slight change. With our kinds of technologies, it won't be such a big deal because you're not talking about ramping up an entire factory. You're talking about personalized production. So I think that that, that is a really cool spinoff. But then there's the other issue, as I mentioned with the microtexture, in principle, it's all compostable. Why shouldn't you use it? Why shouldn't you get away from it? Now, if you're, if I were trying to revolutionize um, technologies on planet Earth, I would get a lot of headwinds. I mean, certainly I'd get a lot of people giving me pats on the, the head and the back, but there are certain tailwinds as well. And that's the economics of the situation and the geopolitical concerns. So we have an existing way of running our cars with petrochemicals. We have existing ways of making plastics. We have existing ways of making cars and particle board and so on. And so whoever comes up with this grand new idea that maybe is greener and makes much more sense is going to have to fight the existing mm -hmm. industry. They're going to have to get them to convert. It's going to have to be cheaper or it's got a better supply chain or, or whatever. I don't have to do that when I'm working at NASA. I can think about really what would be best because we don't have an existing industry on the moon or Mars. The only thing I have to beat are the nominal um, plans for going there. And I can assure you that they all involve taking it with you. So for example, when we're talking about building habitats, the nominal plan is you pack up this huge metal-based structure and you launch it and you take it with you. And so what I need to do is just prove that my method's going to be lower mass and it's still going to be reliable and, and so on, that it would fit into the mission. So I think by doing that, um, it, it gives us some breathing space to develop some of these technologies that I, I dearly, dearly hope will someday revolutionize how we do business on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think like a lot of the ways that we live our lives here on planet Earth brush aside all of the intangibles. You know, when we think about the, the value that a tree serves in terms of sequestering carbon, in cleaning the air, in helping hold moisture retention, you know, minimize soil loss, all of these things are going on. And yet we just take a tree, we cut it down, we turn it into a into toothpicks, or we turn it into chopsticks, or, or whatever, we can turn it into a part of a house. But if you sort of think about it from first principles, like if all you wanted was a board that had the same kind of physical capabilities as 
a plank of wood that you cut from a piece of old growth tree, chances are there is a more efficient way to go to get that end result than to have to cut down a tree and, and get to that. And I think space tends to give us those answers because in space, time, weight, these are all the constraints that you're so focused on that you have to figure out a way to make a hyper-efficient solar panel. But turns out hyper-efficient solar panels, once you bring the cost down, have value across our economy. It's just that someone had to be pushed out of their out of their economic comfort zone to to do that work. Exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's it's that lens. And that and that's why I get so excited about these ideas, because it's like, yes, take this idea and test it on in space. But you know that there are 10,000 doctors who are treating patients where they know that there's only whatever 5,000 patients around the world who have this disease who are spending a million dollars per pill. Could we please give them a way to get access to this drug that doesn't require having to spin up the full, that doesn't require them having to spin up the full pharmaceutical industrial complex distribution machine, right? Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, let's talk about the risks because I think that, you know, normally I don't go into this too much, but I think there's a bunch of sort of hot button, you know, you mentioned a couple of these in terms of planetary protection. Um, you know, what do you think are the risks of of relying so heavily on biology to go to other worlds? Well, I mean, I think the first risk is the fact that people worry, is it reliable? Because life can die. <laughs> right. Anyone's been a gardener knows how this turns right. out. Um, but that doesn't mean that, I mean, life has been around for about 4 billion years. So obviously it also is really good at persisting. And as I half jokingly tell my management, um, I have a cell phone that's rated for what, two to four years. I have a leg bone that's rated for over a hundred, which is the more reliable technology. So, you know, life has figured out ways to be, to remodel and rework and repair damage, which we don't have self-repairing cell phones at this point. Um, in fact, uh, what little I know, there are a certain number of people who are working right now on self-repairing textiles, but it's all biologically aided. That's how they're able to self-repair. Um, so there's always the risk that something could die. And that's why I really like to go with Bacillus subtilis as much as possible um, or other organisms like it because it forms the spore that I mentioned at the beginning is incredibly resistant. So you can take these Bacillus subtilis spores and dry them down and it's basically like dealing with dust. You could have millions of them dried on a piece of paper and they weigh basically nothing. So imagine that you have a sheet of paper and maybe this is dating me, but you coat it with as bacillus subtilis spores that have been programmed to do for different things. You dry it out and you take a hole punch and you just make little tiny discs and that's plenty. And if those can last for, they certainly can last six years in space under the worst conditions, they could last a good deal longer. I mean, we, there, there are occasional reports of organisms that have survived in salt for as long as, um, 250 million years. We right. certainly know organisms that have survived for well over a hundred years 
dried. And the reason we're so sure about those is they come from, oddly enough, herbarium samples. And people who have collected plants and dried them down are extremely good about dating them. And so we know exactly when they were dried, and yet we can take things out of them, including dried tardigrades and you know, dried bacteria and so on. So we know exactly when those experiments were started, much longer than any grant I'm going to get from, <laughs> from the federal government. Um, so we de-risk that way um, in terms of the organisms dying. Um, we're working on using on increasing the shelf life of cell components. Um, another thing is is simply to add capabilities to cells, and this is something else my lab's working on. So if we know that we're going to have a lot of radiation issues, and maybe microgravity, and maybe um, peroxides in the surface of Mars, why not equip these organisms with these capabilities? We know that they exist in, in nature's genetic hardware store, let's add them to the organisms we're going to use. So if you're going to go backpacking in the Antarctic, you obviously would take different things in your backpack than you would take if you were, um, say, taking a vacation on Bali. I just <laughs> thought of that for fun. But I mean, these are very, very different environments. Why should we expect a single bacterium to be able to go to either environment without any changes in its equipment and its genetic backpack. And so this is something that, that we've been pushing is producing genetic backpacks that allow the same organism to do better in different environments. So that also de-risks it. Um, having multiple organisms, having um, ecosystems the way we do in nature helps. Um, you know, all, all these things help. And I, but I think in the end, it's, it's sort of proving it that will be the ultimate you know, I mean, let's do it. But these are, I mean, these are the kinds of ways to minimize, I guess, the biolab failing when the astronauts need their drugs. But what are the risks in terms of us potentially contaminating another place like Mars? Right. So, so as I'm sure you're well aware, we are under um, international protocols in terms of um, forward and back contamination. This is planetary protection. Forward contamination would be putting Earth life elsewhere and back contamination would be bringing back to the Earth. Now, the moon is not an issue because it is lifeless. The assumption is that it's always been lifeless and that except us being there, it will always be lifeless. So it's if there's an organism there, it's because we put it there. So not to worry about the moon. So what we're really talking about is Mars, because there certainly is that possibility that in the past or even potentially in the present that there's an indigenous biota. Now, we know very well, unlike people knew 100 years ago, we know very well that there aren't, you know, giant Martian elephant type things running around because we, we've sent cameras. We, we know they would be awfully hard to, to miss them. Um there's still always this remote chance that there are organisms, for example, in fluid inclusions and polar ice caps. That's sort of my favorite location for a potential Martian or the deep subsurface and so on. So we are under an obligation not to contaminate Mars with Earth organisms. Now, that's going to be almost impossible to do. We've no doubt already done it because we never send anything there that's sterilized. Sterilized means there is not a single living organism. You can't be a little sterile or mostly sterile. As my 
master's advisor used to say, it's like being pregnant. You can't be a little bit or mostly. You either are or you're not. And none of these spacecraft have every last microbe removed. It's impossible to do. It's You can get close. We reduce the bio load so that it's very unlikely anything could grow. Um, but the other issue is going to be that once humans are there, their lives are going to take priority. And so there is this tension between humans and the scientific discovery there. Now, it's going to be a while before I believe we have humans on the surface. People have already talked about sending um, organisms, um, the vision of having a flower bloom on the surface of Mars is, is very compelling. It would be, yeah, it's it's kind of a cheap trick, but it would be a compelling cheap trick. Um, we're going to have to be really careful. And so there have been thoughts about having regions of special interest, for example. Mm. So try to focus on a particular region where we have the humans and hope that the Aeolian winds don't spread germs and so on all over. Now, the chance of Earth microbes just taking off on the surface is basically zero because there isn't liquid water. Um, we're going to have to create compression. Uh, once you get into the fluid inclusions and so on, it's possible. But honestly, we have, <laughs> I've had people in my lab who could kill anything. Um, you know, you're talking about things that are theoretically possible, but are extremely unlikely to contaminate the whole planet, but it's it's certainly something that we do need to worry. We, we have no choice. We have no choice because of international protocols, and we have no choice because of the scientific interests. So we do everything we can to do the science first, and then once we do go with humans, we minimize the damage. I mean, I think the, the greatest risk is, I mean, obviously, we don't want to harm an indigenous life form that's existing on on mars but but like if we go and we do a sample and all we find are cyanobacteria from earth in every sample like we won't be able to get that a proper answer because our bacteria is just busy colonizing the spaces that it can get its hands on because as you said you know they've tested life forms on the exterior of the international space station and they've done just fine <laughs> when they come back to more hospitable environments. And it's tough because like finding out if there is life that formed on, on Mars, it's completely separate. Um, what's it made of, right? Like to get a second sample of life of abiogenesis would be one of the greatest gifts biology could get its hands on. Absolutely. And that's why you have to be able to distinguish between what we might've brought, as you say, say, we brought cyanobacterium that was able to colonize something. Um, and, um, you know, we, we do know what cyanobacteria here look like. The chance of a second genesis being identical is incredibly improbable, I think, you know, using exactly the same amino acids. Now, some amino acids are no-brainers, like alanine and glycine. I mean, those are the simple ones. You find them in all prebiotic settings and so on, no-brainer. Some of them are, are more complex and are created biologically. And again, this issue of chirality, would they all be right-handed or left-handed? There's a good argument that a, a sing, within a single polymer, you keep them all one-handedness or the other, but there's no reason that, you know, really good reason that we just have right-handed sugars and left-handed amino acids. So, and potentially a mirror image, um, cofactors, DNA, 
you know, there's no reason you have to. That's derived from RNA. Um, we we started off with an RNA-based system and and peptides. Um, lipids would they be exactly so? So if we found something, I think we would be able to get a pretty good handle on whether it was a completely different mm-hmm. genesis or whether we were seeing either contamination or our cousins. Now, contamination would mean it was a dead ringer. If we were seeing our ancient cousins, we would have been separated by, you know, long periods of time. And therefore, we would expect more changes. We would expect the kind of divergence that you get. Um, That would be exciting. I mean, that would be amazing to, to see a common, you know, to then to be able to trace back a common ancestor and say, oh, we diverged from Martian life 500 million years ago. Absolutely. And you've probably heard that there is a certain argument for the idea that life originated on Mars and then was transported mm-hmm. to the Earth. Um, and I'm not saying was transported by an intelligent being, but on a, a meteorite, something like that. And that's because Mars being smaller, um, it cooled down much more quickly. And it's also farther from the sun. And so it got to the point where it could have liquid water um, on the surface much more rapidly than the Earth did. And so it's possible that life arose on Mars early on and then was transported to the Earth. I think it's it's unlikely, but it's certainly not impossible. We know that rocks come from Mars to the Earth. We know, you know, when there would have been liquid water and when it cooled down and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it's it's not it's not impossible. It's probably unlikely, but certainly not impossible. Yeah. Um, I mean, at this point, I think like, there was a fairly recent study scientists had found all 20 amino acids, I think, have been found now in samples of meteor. Japanese scientists had found this from the their samples of asteroid Ryugu with the Hayabusa 2 mission. So it's like the raw life really wants to appear. Like all of the raw materials are out there in various quantities to bring the life that we have here on Earth. It's kind of amazing. Well, I, I sort of actually find that I'd, I'd have to look at that paper, but um, in general, there are about ten amino acids out of the twenty that we see normally in comets and meteorites and Yuri Miller sort of experiments, and the rest are biologically made. Mm. So I'd be surprised if they re- if if that weren't contamination, if really <laughs> all twenty were were bi- abiotically produced. I, I'll, I'll dig up the yeah, I'll dig up the the paper and and send it to you, but. I feel like that's what I remember, but you know, I'm not that now excited by biology. And so I saw it's like, huh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. They're finding them all. Um and what do you mean? you're alive too. I don't know. I like I'm, yeah, I appreciate biology. I just, you know, don't spend as much time thinking about it as me. Maybe I should. Well, and there are a lot of other amino acids that we don't that life doesn't tend to use that are found in things like meteorites and so on. And again, why did we take some and why do we mm. use some and not the others? Yeah. Um, and and so, you know, all these are interesting questions and maybe another life form has used a different uh, different vocabulary. But you're quite right that the basic language of life, at least these first, you know, five to 10 amino acids are found all over the place. And you do get a certain number of the bases and lipids are produced abiotically and so on. So this this kind of language that we use for life in a general sense does appear to be universal. And so that means that life forms elsewhere may not be as biochemically alien as all that. Um, They may, you know, no doubt they're not identical to us, 
but they may not be in, in a broad sense as alien as all that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, would you we'll get back to the the Niagara one last time? So, what is your deliverable? You've got you're in a phase two now. You're expected to do some work. What what are you hoping to accomplish by the end of this grant? Well, I mean, right now we're still sort of in the oh my god, we got it. <laughs> you know, where right. we're, we're celebrating. Um, one of our big discoveries from phase one was that some of these drugs are toxic to the, to the bacteria when we ask them to make it and then secrete it. And so then that becomes kind of a non-starter. And we had all along proposed the idea of using a cell-free mechanism. And NASA headquarters has always pushed back and said that they were concerned because of the stability. And now they understand what the beauty of the cell-free system is. You're not worrying about the toxicity to a cell. It doesn't matter how toxic it is. Um, and it's not that these drugs are not harmful in any way. They're they're helpful for humans. They just, at the concentration that we're asking a bacterium to make it, it may be toxic to the bacterium. So we are focusing, we have a couple of people on the team who really are world's leaders in developing cell-free systems. So we are starting to really focus on the stability of a cell-free system. We have a wonderful colleague at McMaster University in Canada who has a planetary simulator. And so he's already starting to test some of these cell-free systems to see if we can speed up degradation and whether there's a way to prove that they could, in principle, survive for several years the way the Bacillus subtilis spore does. Um, We certainly need to produce these drugs and develop the entire um, production purification system. We had um, two wonderful engineers on the phase one who have come back for phase two, and we have the drawings and a proof of concept, but now what we're doing is developing the microfluidics. So we have a system that we can show really does work, and it's based on the techniques we would use in a lab anyway, just miniaturized. Um, And then the, the other the other part is to make sure that the purity is right. And as I mentioned early on, that we also are developing a database where we're looking to see first with the drugs that are on the astronaut med list, where in principle, we could um, go and and re- make these drugs with the astropharmacy or whether it would um it, it would be a non-starter or something in the middle where we certainly could, but you would have to add these steps of complexity. So we we could get a cell-free system to make chlorophyll in some way, but it would take a whole bunch of steps. Mm. Um, I mentioned that because right now we're working on on making some fungi melanized, so turning them black on purpose. Um, and melanin is good for protection from UV, just like those of us whose ancestors came from temperate regions. Tan in response to UV in the summer actually every human does. They they actually do all get darker thanks to melanin. There are many organisms that have melanin, including some fungi. Um, you may be familiar with them or not from the rim in your dishwasher that tends to have a certain amount of black fungi. Right, I, okay. Dispersions on your cleaning. Um, it's just that many people do have a little bit of the black gunk. That's, that's melanized fungi. Huh. And there is evidence that they are better protected from radiation. And so we are making some of those right now. So again, there are a lot of things that we could make in principle. And so I think what what we have to focus on then after these two years is hopefully we'll have a, a good prototype system to make and we'll have an idea of what we could make or what it would take a lot more work um, and then really develop it to the point that people would feel comfortable um, using something like that. 
And then we would have to, if they are at that point, we need to then prioritize the drugs. As I said, we've been prioritizing the peptide-based ones because they're easiest for us to make and they're the least stable. But there may be sort of a second tier of ones that are unstable, but not peptide-based that would be only another couple of steps for us to make. Right. Or there might be some that um, that are really important um, or you're not sure if they're going to be there or, you know, who knows what, but um, it might be worth it. Now, we've been focusing on the peptide base. One of the big disadvantages to a protein-based drug is you can't swallow it because all the enzymes in your stomach are just going to degrade it. So you really have to have purity to be able to inject it. Mm. This, so it does, in that respect, it's more difficult for us. So if we had a drug that that maybe um, was not a protein-based drug. It may be a little more difficult for us to make, but it might be something that ends up as a nutraceutical. You just go ahead and you eat at the end. You you actually, maybe you make it in bacterium or maybe you switch to something like a yeast cell, which, you know, they're used to make bread and beer and so on. Um, so, you know, you might be able to just, you know, swig your, <laughs> swig or eat your, uh, you know, your, your pharmaceutical sandwich. And then we don't actually have to worry about purification at all. And so, you know, what we lose in the fact that it's easier to make a peptide, we gain in the fact that we don't have to do the purification. So there, there are a lot of different ways that we can go um, from this in the future, but that's, that's pretty much the, the slice that we really want to accomplish in the next two years. Very interesting. Uh, well, Dr. Rothschild, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Good luck with uh, this project. I look forward to this time when I can just go over to the kitchen and 3D print, biologically produce uh, any kind of anything, actually. You know what? Anything that I need. I want that Star Trek replicator. That sounds great. Me too. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You can get even more space news on my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at university.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent and keeps ads at a bare minimum. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Vlad Shipelin, Jay Dennis, David Giltanen, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Andrew M. Gross, and Josh Schultz, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.